Welcome to Question Period on this Sunday, February 5th. I'm Vashi Capellos. Today, as crime dominates headlines, calls to address it. Their soft on crime policies over the last eight years have made the matter considerably worse. I'm disappointed that the official opposition is using tragedies to try to score political points. The federal government is being pushed to make it harder for repeat offenders to get bail. Are they willing to go there? We'll go one-on-one -on -one with Justice Minister David Lametti and ask him. Then, Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner Thomas Creek joins us for an exclusive TV interview. Plus, this is the week premiers finally get their meeting with the Prime Minister on health care. I'm not going into this meeting with any red lines. BC Premier David Eby is here for the first time ahead of that big meeting. Then, axed amendment. He is doing this because he got caught. The Liberals walk back contentious gun bill amendment that would have banned popular hunting rifles. What's the truth about the politics behind that move? Our Sunday strategy session with Kathleen Monk, Corey Tonike, and Scott Reed is just ahead. Let's start today with the growing calls to address crime. This week, the Tories introduced a motion to toughen bail conditions for repeat offenders. The motion didn't pass, but premiers across the country are making similar appeals. Back in 2019, the federal government passed bail reforms through what was known as Bill C-75. The intent of the law was to address overcrowded prisons and the overrepresentation of racialized minorities in those prisons. Some critics, though, argue the changes have made the bail system rather too lenient, putting too many dangerous people on the streets. Justice Minister and Attorney General David Lametti is with me now. Hi, Minister. Good to have you on set today. I really appreciate you making the time. Pleased to be here. I know that you, you kind of called out the Conservatives for uh, their motion on this and, and said that they were you know, playing politics with some of the tragedies that we've seen uh, occur recently. Uh, the Premiers, though, are making very similar asks. Do you think they're playing politics, too? No, I think we all have a legitimate concern here. The, the premiers, uh, well, the, the justice ministers and public safety ministers raised this with Minister Mendicino and myself last October. And so their letter is, I suppose, the natural follow-up uh, to the, the discussions that we initially had in which we, we tasked our, our deputy ministers of justice and public safety to begin looking at options. And we, we've we'll push that forward. We plan to go forward with that discussion uh, with Justice Ministers, Public Safety Ministers. I announced in the House yesterday uh, that we would announce that date soon and our, our Deputy Ministers will also uh, be in contact at, at the officials level before that uh, to outline the kinds of changes we might make uh, to the Criminal Code. But it also underlines that it's not simply uh, federal Criminal Code amendments. It's, it's provincial administration. How can we help the provinces better administer bail. The, the Conservatives often forget to point out that in the high-profile murder case of, of uh, Constable Pershala in, in southwestern Ontario, the, the person was, was uh, he was not technically out on bail in the sense that there was a bench warrant out for his arrest. So I he had breached his bail conditions and he was supposed to have been arrested and he wasn't. But that's a problem too, right? That is a problem and we, we want to look at how we can help the provinces uh, it may be with resources, and Minister Mendicino has been open uh, to that discussion, but it, it, it's also how can we better support the provinces in the administration of the bail regime. So, so, so if I, am I reading correctly into that, that I, I'm a bit confused. Are you open to changing the bail regime, or do you think the onus will be on the provinces and you assisting them? It's on all of us. Uh, we'll look at criminal code amendments to the bail regime, 
the provinces have asked us to do it, the justice ministers have asked us to do it, and we have been doing that work. So this, this isn't something that started last week or a few weeks ago, this started last fall. Um, so we will come together, hopefully with some ideas uh, in, the, in the very short term to fix that. Um, but there's also ways in which we can help the province. British Columbia has come out with uh, an administration of justice package for bail. Uh, I spoke with uh, Attorney uh, General Sharma in person two days ago um, to go over what they were doing. Ontario has also uh, ha has some programs in place with respect to the administration of bail. How can we take best practices? Uh, how can we get other provinces to, to use those best practices? And how can we as a federal government support of those initiatives. And, and I take your point on what the provinces are doing or could be doing. Those two that you mentioned, though, are almost leading the pack asking for additional help from the federal government. And in the case of BC specifically, I, I wondered your thoughts on uh, Bill, C Bill 75, rather, because uh, BC conducted its own review that led to the changes that, that they brought in, an expert right. panel. And part of what that expert panel concluded was, it is unclear what alternative means were contemplated, but the impact of Bill C-75 has been profound in terms of uh, reducing the tools available for police to manage offenders in the community and the corresponding rather impact on communities. As Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria and co-chair of the BC Urban Mayor's Caucus told us, Bill C-75 has had real unanticipated consequences in putting even more people on the streets. Do you concede, right. though I understand where the intent was on Bill C-75, that the impact has not been what you thought it would be and that it does necessitate some changes? Well, these discussions are, 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 are aimed at trying to bring out that evidence. Like, what evidence of changes are there? Um, and we'll but work isn't that evidence that BC, I mean, this is, a, this well, is by the government in BC. Uh, this is mayors from all across BC yeah, testifying to that. We're working at the, at the officials level to get the details that are behind that statement. Uh, and we'll take that and we'll work with it uh, in good faith to, to fix what we, you know, what we feel we can fix. Um, I would point out, though, too, with respect to uh, Bill C-75, that um, on the one hand, it incorporated a number of Supreme Court of Canada decisions. Uh, and, uh, Does that tie your hands when it comes to repealing parts of it, though? Um, it certainly would, and we have the charter. We have, to work within the, we have to work within the confines of the charter. Canadians have a charter right to bail. It's a pre-charter right. It's, it's a long-standing common law right, because you're innocent until proven guilty. And so it's up to the state. The bail system, bail system is meant uh, to uh, allow people to go on bail if they don't pose a threat to public safety. And so uh, a person will, in, in principle, and the Supreme Court has said this, get bail if they're not a threat to public safety. So we have to work within those parameters in what we do with, with legislation. In we have ideas. Right, but in layman's terms, does that mean you've shut the door on repealing any parts of Bill C-75? No, we still think there, there are places that, that, we, can, uh, that we can tweak uh, Bill C-75. Remember too, and this is important, we, we strengthened the bail regime with respect to intimate partner violence. We made it more difficult to get bail for, for people who had a, a record of intimate partner violence. And so uh, there were a number of, number of changes that were made, and, and I think we need to see the evidence that are behind very, I, I think, very uh, um, uh, sincere statements uh, that reform is necessary. We need to look at the evidence behind that. Okay, I'll switch gears, and, and okay. I want to ask you now about okay. the uh, announcement, the extension, rather, that you announced uh, for MAID applying directly to people who suffer from mental illness. Uh, you said in making that announcement that you wanted to make sure the right safeguards were in place. What, what do you intend or what do you hope you safeguard against? Well, but let me say from the outset that, that 
getting made with the single criterion of a mental disorder or mental illness um, is a very rare case. Already, the vast majority of made cases are in the end-of-life regime that, that began in 2016. We've added a small fraction of cases in 2021 in a non-end-of-life regime with, with uh, safeguard criteria. This falls in that. The, the, the mental disorder, mental illness as a sole criterion would fall within that non-end-of-life regime. So it's a small fraction of a small fraction. So there are not many cases. I just want to underline that this is not, MADE is not available to uh, people who are contemplating suicide. But you know there have been anecdotes of people yeah. coming out and saying, I, I was in that position and I, and I was offered it too quickly. And that's why I asked about the yeah, safeguards, because, because, because I, I think that there is a level of concern among Canadians right now that uh, somehow it's being offered too easily, right? I'm sure right, you're, you're right, familiar with yeah. that concern, right? So, so in the case of mental illness, when you think about safeguards, what are you trying to safeguard against there? Well, we're trying to make sure that it's only used in those cases where uh, the criteria are meant to apply. So in those very rare cases um, where there aren't any other options and where there isn't, there isn't a possibility of, uh, of getting better and the person is suffering horribly. And um, we have a good basis to move forward uh, with the expert report. What the, what the one-year delay is doing is allowing everyone to internalize the, the the standards of the criteria in that report and allowing universities to, to prepare teaching materials, uh, allowing colleges, uh, provincial colleges to, to prepare guidelines at the provincial level, allowing everybody to get the appropriate level of training and understanding of the bill. I'm certainly not here to uh, make judgment on that. I think right. that, and I understand that, that those cases are rare. Um, but but I but I do think it's so serious that even if they are rare, um, they they have prompted and, and certainly my inbox is an indication of that some concern yeah. from people who are worried, especially you know even more um, you know bodies representative of people who suffer right. from mental illness have right. highlighted this this concern over whether or not someone can actually determine whether the mental illness is incurable, right? Yeah. It's, not, it's not a black and white issue that, way that some other medical conditions are. How will you address that? Well, we've, we have, uh, first of all, we've heard those concerns, which is why we're proposing this delay. This delay will also help us to explain uh, the regime and will help doctors, the, the, the panel of experts that develop the criteria, uh, to explain that regime will allow colleges, physicians and surgeons and other governing bodies to, to develop the supplementary materials and explanations. Is to help there a science to it though? I mean I feel like even if you put in conditions like it's just it seems very um, arbitrary is the wrong word but like it's it's not black and white. Yeah. Right? Well I, I spoke with Dr. Mona Gupta at length who chaired that committee yeah. uh, and she feels that clinicians have been dealing with with these kinds of mental disorders for their whole careers. And, and she feels uh, clinicians, doctors, uh, uh, health practitioners are well equipped uh, to help patients uh, in, this, in, their, in their treatment. Um, to determine that something is incurable, that no treatment can help. That's right. And so obviously that will change as science changes, but, uh, but there's a confidence there amongst health practitioners that, that, and clinicians who are experienced in this field. Um, that this isn't that this is uh, entirely possible. Okay, Minister, I'm out of time. I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Welcome back to Question Period. I want to continue that conversation on calls for bail reform here in Canada. The calls became more pronounced following the tragic killing of Ontario Constable Greg Pirshala back in December. 
Four of Canada's largest police associations following that killing issued a joint statement pushing for change, writing, quote, we are saying today what we are sure most Canadians are feeling. Enough is enough. Randall McKenzie, who was charged with first-degree murder in Prashala's fatal shooting, was out on bail and had a lifetime ban from owning a firearm. OPP Commissioner Thomas Creek joins me now. Hi, Commissioner Creek. Good to have you on our program. Thank you for making the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, the subject of bail reform or addressing uh, what happened in December to uh, Constable Greg Pershala is, uh, you know, very predominant on the Hill, the House of Com in the House of Commons rather, and on Parliament Hill over the past number of weeks, and, and specifically actually this past week. I wanted to try and cut through some of that with you because uh, when the constable was killed, you, were, you said you were outraged and you did want to see some changes as a result. Could you describe for Canadians listening today what, what those changes could or should look like? Absolutely, those changes uh, should include a more weight being given when an offender is a repeat violent offender with a pattern of non-compliance for interim release conditions and has shown a propensity towards using firearms and violent offenses. We as police chiefs right across this country are asking for a narrow, very narrow scope that deals with the most dangerous of offenders and will ensure the safety and security of police officers and citizens alike. And would that be different than the way things are right now because some have said uh, to me when I pose that question you know like those dangerous offenders are already treated in a certain way the, the restrictions around them are already pretty severe uh, how would you counter that what would you say to that yeah I would counter that with complete disagreement there are cases in the case of Constable Perchella where the individual charged with first-degree murder had shown a concerning pattern of non-compliance with previous weapons and firearm related prohibitions and other court imposed conditions. He was subsequently charged with violent offenses and still released on a judicial interim uh, conditions for which he did not abide by. We had 587 what I would categorize as repeat violent offenders uh, charged with failing to apply with conditions through 2021 and 22 and 464 of those were charged with further violent offenses. And that's in only in OPP police jurisdictions. That does not include all of the other police services right across this province, right across this country. So let me ask you if you think, uh, and it has been your experience, that Bill C-75, which was originally intended to address a few things, um, the overcrowding of prisons and also the disproportionate representation for minorities, uh, if you think it has had uh, sort of an effect that differs from what the intent was, because we have seen out in BC, for example, a number of mayors, a number of police forces, the province itself say, Basically, there are too many people out when there shouldn't be, as a result, an unintended kind of consequence of Bill C-75. Have, have you experienced something similar? I would say that we have experienced something similar. It has been an unintended consequence. And violent offenders are being released into communities, and they are, in some cases, victimizing people within their own communities. This is about the safety and security of innocent Canadians, innocent visitors and residents to our province, and more weight must be given to the pattern of violence, a pattern of non-compliance, a willingness to use weapons and firearms. These things much, must be given much greater weight in the important decisions that are made regarding bail. 
Do you think that necessitates repealing parts of Bill C-75 or, or could it happen in other ways? You know, as for how best for it to happen legislatively, that would be best for the lawmakers to comment on. I do believe that they need to critically look at Bill C-75 with a lens of bail reform and putting these things that we as police officers across this nation are saying need to be given greater weight, uh, whether that is amendments to Bill C-75, which is now enacted, uh, there needs to be changes made to legislation, there needs to be changes made to policy, and we need to see decisions being made that put the proper weight on public safety. Uh, you and your force uh, lived through an, you know, an, an awful thing um, when the constable was killed. I'm wondering if you think that uh, politicians are, are seized with the issue to the degree they should be. I have been extremely encouraged and I'm very grateful for the leadership of a number of politicians, starting with Premier Ford, who pulled together and had unanimous support uh, from every premier across this country who have written to our, our prime minister asking for consideration for bail reform that will make Canada a much safer nation. Uh, I think we've got the momentum that is necessary to bring about responsible and meaningful change that will truly have a positive impact on public safety. If the Prime Minister and his team are watching today, and I'm interviewing the Justice Minister actually on this subject, your message to them, uh, uh, Commissioner? Change is needed now. Meaningful, responsible change is needed now. The Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police introduced a resolution back in 2008 which is coming on 15 years ago, which had those very practical, straightforward recommendations being given proper consideration and the appropriate legislative reform taken place, we could have prevented almost 15 years of victimization at the hands of some repeat violent offenders. This can't go on. We need leadership, we need meaningful change, and we need to take responsibility for our communities. Commissioner, I'll leave it there. I do appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Canada's urgent health care crisis is set to be sharply in focus on Parliament Hill this week. After months of contention between the feds and the provinces, premiers and the prime minister will finally meet here in Ottawa Tuesday. The premiers want the feds to increase their share of health care funding substantially through the Canada Health Transfer. They're collectively asking for about $28 billion a year more. Healthcare is, of course, a top concern for Canadians. One in five of us don't have a family doctor. In other words, six million Canadians. I had a chance to speak with BC's Premier David Eby while he was in Ottawa to meet with the Prime Minister. I want to talk about this healthcare deal, uh, the potential for one, I should say. Uh, I know you have a long list, and most premiers do, of what they're hoping to get out of this meeting with the Prime Minister. If you were to identify for Canadians watching tonight, though, what your primary hope is that you walk away from this meeting with, what it, would it be? Uh, well, the, the context is we've been pushing for a long time. My predecessor, John Horgan, uh, pushing for a long time, and uh, the other premiers for this meeting. So it's a really important moment, and, and I'm just really grateful we're over that hurdle of getting around the table so we can get to a deal. Uh, there's two hours that's been set for the meeting, so obviously this isn't going to be the meeting where we get to the deal. Uh, but my expectation and hope is that we see a good faith offer from the Prime Minister that uh, gives the Premier something uh, to work on with the federal government so we can get this behind us and focus on care for British Columbians and for all Canadians. 
So to be clear, there hasn't been an initial, like you don't have an offer in front of you, a starting point at this juncture. No, we're not reviewing a draft. My understanding is it'll be presented at this meeting. You've also spoken in the past few weeks about your openness towards a, a bilateral arrangement with the federal government. C can you explain in layman's terms what that would look like? Sure, there, there are two pieces here. One is just core funding for the healthcare system. Uh, the federal government, uh, we count on them to provide funding for the basic health care that we deliver for British Columbians. Uh, the federal government share has been getting smaller and smaller, so that means we have to take money from things like schools or roads or other provincial priorities into the health care system to make sure that care is there for people. If the feds are there, then we don't have to do that and we have more resources for other priority programs. But bilateral means that we can sit down with the federal government after that core piece is addressed with all the premiers and say, look, in BC, we have a rapidly aging population. We need more home care spaces. Uh, we have issues around mental health and addiction in our streets. We need addiction and mental health care to be part of our health care system. On the core funding that, that wouldn't be the bilateral part of this agreement, the federal government has spent the past, past two weeks rather signaling that the, the fiscal room they have to maneuver within is more constrained because of the prospect of a recession. Uh, I've asked, you know, does that mean that the Premier should be taking that message to heed? And, and they've, they've sort of wavered on that. And, and I'm wondering from your perspective if you have any signals or what your expectations are for how much money they'll bring to the table. Just for people watching, the collective ask from Premiers amounts to about $28 billion more a year. So, you know, there, there's not a, a Premier around the table that doesn't understand the state of the global economy and all the pressures around inflation that we're seeing that are showing up in Canada, showing up in our provinces in different ways, and certainly showing up for the federal government. I think what we're all looking for is a good faith offer from the Prime Minister, from the, the federal government, uh, that's going to start that conversation. If, if they come to the table with that, I think we're going to be able to get a deal for everybody, and it's going to be really good news for British Columbians that are looking for care. What does good faith mean? And I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm guessing you're not going to go negotiate in the media here and say, here's the dollar amount I'm looking for. But there's a lot of back and forth, and, and we have covered it extensively, of the escalator in particular. Like, d it, from your perspective, should it be more than the 3% it is right now? Well, one of the uh, challenges we've faced is the drugs uh, that people need are getting more expensive, more sophisticated, tailored to individuals, uh, that uh, people are living longer, and so they have more health care needs as they age, and we have an aging population in British Columbia. And so the costs are not uh, uh, keeping track with that, uh, that escalator, that 3% annually. And so this is part of the conversation we need to have with the federal government. There are ways that we can bring those costs down. There are ways that we can operate more efficiently uh, by working together, and I'm keen to explore those, but we also need to make sure that that federal share of spending um, remains consistent and predictable for us so that we can plan our budgets as well. So bottom line, the escalator does need to go up from where you sit. There, we're going to sit around the table. The Prime Minister is going to bring his offer. Uh, it's going to include, I assume, discussion around the escalator piece of it, as well as what the core funding amount is going to be and how much is going to be allocated to this bilateral, all these technical things. And we're going to sit down as premiers and, uh, and come to a resolution with the prime minister. I'm looking forward to that, but that's going to happen at that table. So, so you're not willing to say now if you'd like to see the escalator go up? Because that, that has been consistently what your predecessor and other premiers have said. So I'm not going into this meeting with any red lines. I'm going to this meeting with uh, mindset of how can I deliver health care for British Columbians and what is the federal government going to be bringing to that shared responsibility that we both have and I think all the premiers around the table are entering this with that approach we'll take the Prime Minister's offer and discuss it and work on it with the federal government and, and I'm keen to do that. Jagmeet Singh who leads the federal wing uh, of the New Democratic Party wants the federal government to tie some of that funding to the maintenance of public health care and in particular 
has directed his ire at, at what Premier Doug Ford in Ontario announced around using private for-profit clinics to clear the surgical backlog. BC uses some of those clinics too, uh, and you have indicated that you want to move away from it. Do you think the federal government should be tying money to those endeavors? So in BC, we are going in a different direction. We've been buying privately owned clinics and bringing them into the public system. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, when, when you allow people to buy their way to the front of the line with imaging, for example, you know, you need an MRI or something like that, it doesn't change the fact that it's a line, right? The line is still there, but it changes who's at the front. And we believe that it should be a universal public health care system. We use private clinics uh, in BC to do publicly funded procedures, uh, but we're moving away from that and we're focusing on public health care because if we open more of these private clinics, our concern is that it's going to pull doctors and nurses out of the public system into the private clinics. Uh, we're going to be competing with them for salary and retention. Uh, and uh, we're going to end up paying the profit margin plus the additional cost for the same doctors and nurses. Do you regret being part of a government that allowed those clinics to grow to the level that they did? I think in the 2020-21 fiscal year, BC spent a record $27 million for private delivery of public health care. Yeah, we, uh, our focus is on uh, driving that number down because if you look at that in proportion to our spending on our public health care system, you'll see that far and away uh, we put additional and far more resources into the public system. But do and you that regret being part be of a government approach. that got to that level in the first place if you're now saying we should back away from it? Our focus has always been how do we provide care for British Columbians, especially uh, through the pandemic period. And so not being ideological about it, just being like what is going to provide the care for British Columbians? But now Columbians? you're ideological about it. No, not at all. The, the goal is a publicly available healthcare system, publicly funded, and uh, one of the key considerations is if you're going to expand private clinics, like where are these doctors and nurses going to come from? They're going to come from the public system. We have to be reality-minded in the healthcare system because at the end of the day, for British Columbians, paying extra money for the same doctors and nurses isn't going to solve it. So our focus has actually been on how do we bring more doctors and nurses into the system by recognizing foreign credentials, for example, expediting the approval of internationally trained nurses, opening the first medical school in 50 years in Western Canada, more spaces at UBC to train getting additional people into the system rather than saying, well, maybe, you know, if we pay extra for them in a private clinic, somehow that's going to help. So Jagmeet Singh says, though, that because Doug Ford is saying what you just pointed out, the federal government should withhold money through the Canada Health Transfer from the province of Ontario. Do you think the federal government should take that posture? Uh, well, we're, we're strong believers in the protection of uh, public health care through the Medicare Protection Act. And, uh, for example, we have uh, a couple of actions right now against private care providers in British Columbia saying this is not acceptable and we're not going to provide public funding to these private clinics that are uh, providing additional charges for people to access basic public health care. So we're taking strong action against that in B.C. Uh, we expect the federal government uh, to look to us and say, we want a public health care system. We want to see you enforcing those rules. We'll do that. Um, for that uh, Ontario is clearly choosing it. Ontario is clearly choosing a different direction. But do you think that Jagmeet Singh is right that the feds should be weighing in? The, the feds do weigh in. They they uh, have and uh, in the past uh, and will continue to, I imagine, uh, uh, look at provincial private care delivery and say that's not uh, consistent with their expectations. For us in BC. Uh, we hold ourselves to a high standard around a public health care system that works for everybody. And that will continue to be our approach, whether or not the federal government is weighing in in that way. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. I'm out of time. Thank you for your time, Premier. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It is not our intention uh, to uh, impact uh, those that are uh, hunting and using uh, firearms for hunting. And we acknowledge and regret that uh, the consultations that we undertook 
uh, were not sufficient uh, and that there were uh, gaps uh, and problems in the amendments. That's why we've retracted them. He is doing this because he got caught and because Canadians of all walks of life from across the country, law-abiding, decent, Indigenous Canadians, farmers, rural Canadians who, who follow the law, stood up with Conservatives and forced him to temporarily pause this plan. As you just heard there, the Liberals are axing a controversial amendment to their gun bill. The amendment would have added popular hunting rifles to a list of banned firearms in Canada and had prompted backlash when it was introduced, even among some Liberals themselves. The Liberals' move comes as recent polling shows the Tories making some gains nationally. So what's behind the U-turn on gun control? The Sunday strategy session is here. Kathleen Monk is a former NDP strategist and director of communications to the late, late rather, Jack Layton. Corey Tonight was Ontario Premier Doug Ford's campaign manager and former director of communications for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And Scott Reed is a CTV News political analyst and former communications director to Prime Minister Paul Martin. Hi, everybody. Good to Hi see there. you today. Uh, Kathleen, I'm going to start yeah. with you. How big of a deal do you think it is that the Liberals walk back on these amendments? And more importantly, like, why do you think they did? I think, you know, it was clear that Mendicino, Minister Mendicino, waved the white flag in December. But we didn't expect these amendments to actually be pulled as quickly as they were. But I think they just want to actually get the bill passed. They want to have this firearms legislation done so they can move past it and avoid some of the attacks that were coming from Mr. Polyev and the Conservative caucus, that they are weak uh, when it comes to, this has always been a kind of a battleground for all political parties. I mean, if there's one rule in political politics, it's like when gun legislation comes up, there'll be lots of political posturing and fundraising off of it. And that's what's happened. And so basically, I think with the Liberals moving quickly to withdraw these amendments, they basically are trying to put it to bed and have the legislation in hand that they need to secure the urban areas of Canada. Yeah, they had sort of signaled, as Kathleen mentions, Corey, that they were open to changes, but but they didn't say for sure, like, it's all going to be gone. Mm -hmm. and, and this is like a, a pretty significant walk back of, of the amendments, which were weird, weirdly kind of introduced in, in the first place. What do you think is behind that kind of decision at this point in time? I'm frankly quite perplexed. Look, as a hunter and a firearms enthusiast myself, <laughs> I'm very happy that this is being pulled back. But as a political strategist and campaign manager, I'm really perplexed by it because I think this is a good wedge issue for them in places where they need to win. Uh, uh, gun control is very popular with uh, uh, with uh, urban uh, uh, urban Canadians, particularly women. It's it's a values issue more than a crime issue, uh, but it's it's a good wedge for them. And so I'm I'm perplexed why they take that off the table. Uh, I think it's I think it's been working well for them. But uh, you know, on a policy basis, very happy about it. Couldn't be happier. <laughs> Scott, what about you? Do you have any sense as to why they would walk this one back? Well, they had a Santa Claus problem. Like, if you're going to make a list, you better check it twice. And look, this one amendment is fundamentally a list of firearms that were going to be banned. And it was a crummy list. And it was obvious almost from the get-go. So Corey's right. When you're on the high ground of, you know, restricting the use of guns, restricting access to firearms, uh, that's a good wedge issue. That's a good political place for you to be. But when you're on defense saying, well, wait a second, this particular model isn't actually, uh, you know, an assault rifle. It's really more of a hunting rifle. Yeah, okay, well, we're going to... They just, you know, they reached a point, I think, particularly with their NDP colleagues on the committee where they said, you know, can we fix this thing or do we have to scrap it? They decided to scrap it. My complaint isn't that they did it this late. It's that they didn't do it earlier. I think they should have done it before Christmas when they first seemed to acknowledge that there was a challenge. But fundamentally, they, they, it, it's, a, it's, it's a bad list and they couldn't get it through and they had to pull it.
Does this have anything to do, Kathleen, do you, do you think with some of the public polling? I know they'll have the, their own internals, but some of the public polling we've seen over the last few weeks, which does uh, both Nanos and Abacus show the Conservatives with a bit of momentum, at least from a national perspective? Yeah, I think, well, I think the Conservatives know that their base is mobilized by the gun issue. But the problem is, as Corey pointed out, it's the suburban voters that they actually want gun legislation. They don't want to see guns near our playgrounds or in our urban centers or in our cities. So I think in some ways that, yes, the Liberal strategy was to use this gun legislation as a wedge. But when they lost the block, they lost the NDP, they said, you know what, let's just get the gun legislation, secure this for our urban centers, and not let... Polyev and the Conservative caucus to continually hit them over the head with this because actually the, the the Liberals are polling okay on crime right now but you'll see it in Polyev's messaging that he keeps on bringing up crime rates of you know uh, uh, bail issues time and time again because why he's trying to weaken the Liberals on that one issue to, to that's a Harper strategy Harper right. used it time and time again uh, and when he was in office it was always the threat of crime in the suburban areas that he used against him and, and Polyev's taking a similar tact. Do, do you think it's going to be effective uh, Corey and, and, and the reason I mean th there's a reason that they're doing it as well motivated by current events right like there's right. been a rash of terrible headlines that I think a lot of Canadians it, are unsettled it's, by it's, but do you think the yeah. argument that it's Trudeau's fault is convincing? Uh, well, I don't think people blame any politician in particular for the crime that they're seeing, but I, I do think there's a re uh, there's a responsibility and uh, to to clean it up. It is not just headlines. Like when you look at the TTC ridership in Toronto, it's way down. And when you poll people and ask why, it's because they don't feel safe on the subway. And, and that's yeah. and that's a lived experience. That's not something that's just driven by headlines. The rash of carjackings and car thefts in, in uh, regions like Peel, it's off the charts. And, uh, and everyone knows somebody who this has happened to. So, you know, I, I think there needing to be a response to that is important. You have all the premiers, every premier in the, uh, in the country has asked for bail reform of the government. I think it would be very wise for them to, to listen to that and, and do that. But this sort of catch and release system of criminal justice that, that has, uh, has evolved is, is not working. Uh, and, uh, and there are definitely are votes to be gained from people who want to see it cleaned up. And, you know, it, uh, and in, on this, this front, I think getting the gun control piece off the table and into things that are more tangibly associated with the things that are going on, so violence on the subways, carjackings, etc., that would be where I would go with it if I were, if I were the Liberal government. Do, do you think there are, and, and not to be, you know, not that anyone means it in a crass way, but are there votes to be gained on that issue, do you think, mm. uh, Scott? Well, uh, there's votes to be lost as well as gained. And so, you know, I just, I really want to echo something Corey just said because I think it's really important. I mean, sometimes liberals make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, gun control can be our antidote to any concern with respect to crime. And it does not work that way. So, you know, you heard Corey use this phrase and you've heard Polyev use it, catch and release, catch and release. I think that cuts. I think that is getting in people's heads. I think particularly in the city of Toronto and the GTA, when you see all these rash of violent events on the TTC. And so, you know, arguing about whether or not I am or I'm not taking away a hunting rifle from some farmer in you know eastern Ontario I don't think that's where you want to be they've got to talk about bail reform if they want to take on this issue directly so I think they decided to cut bait and refocus it's, I just have time for one more uh, question, and I'm going to jump off of what Scott said, Kathleen, and give you the last word. I, I just interviewed Minister Lametti for this program, and he um, concedes that, yes, there does need to be reform. He's open to perhaps even repealing parts of Bill C-75, but, like, 
in in no way is he saying this is going to happen immediately or like like it's really sort of technical if that makes sense in mm. the, in the way that they're answering do you think that's the right approach I don't know, to be honest. I, I think that what the party strategists are looking at is, is, is how to grow their universe, how to look at those accessible voters. And if crime is going to continue to be an issue uh, because of the reasons that Corey raised and the things that we're seeing in the headlines, then the Liberals are going to have to act in some way because they don't want to lose any of the ground that they currently have. Currently, Canadians think they're doing an okay jo job on public safety and crime. But if we keep on hearing Polyev pound away at Prime Minister Trudeau on the issues, uh, you know, whether it's catch and release, or more crime in our streets, like Harper did in the early years, uh, you know, he will weaken the Liberals consistently and then therefore the Liberals will have to react. Okay, I have to leave it there. Hey, Vashi, can I add one yeah, quick thing? Yeah, you can really quickly, sure. I think Corey wants I'll to tell you, go for it. Yeah. The, the political level of the Liberals, go, Liberal government is going to have to face down their own bureaucracy. That was a bad list that was given to Minister Mendicino, prepared by his officials, and if they're going to do bail reform, they're going to have to face down the Department of Justice, who will oppose it at the bureaucratic level. That's going to be a test to them politically. Corey, did you want to say something? Else? No, no, I'm good. I'll, okay, I'll, okay, I'll leave it no, right no. There. okay. My, my producer will be excited by that. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks, everyone. Scott Reed, Kathleen Monk, and Corey Tadike. So I'm not going into this meeting with any red lines. I'm going to this meeting with a uh, mindset of how can I deliver healthcare for British Columbians? We're there. We just want a willing partner. Right now, as you know, federal government gives 22%, and we would like to see that increase to 35. Some different views on money from the provinces, as you heard there, ahead of Tuesday's health care meeting between them and the Prime Minister. The Scrum is here to help us look ahead to that meeting, one that has really been, you could say, years in the making. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. Binder Sajan is the Legislative Bureau Chief for CTV Vancouver. And Robert Benzie is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Hi, everybody. Very Hello. nice to see you. Money is a big deal in this for sure, but it sounds to me from all these comments like a lot of stuff has been worked out, Stephanie, in advance of the meeting on Tuesday. It's not like the first time they're going to be hearing some of no, this. No, I think there's no way the Prime Minister would actually convene this meeting with Premiers if there wasn't some paper in front of them to agree upon and not agree upon. I mean, and the Prime Minister's also already signaled that he's not expecting to walk out, you know, with a sheaf of paper with a bunch of signatures on it saying, hey, we've got a deal. What they need to do is agree on parameters and, and, and be singing from the same song sheet going forward to the extent that they can. I think the Premier's Premier Doug Ford, Premier David Eby have signaled a willingness to have a discussion. If there's no, I think the Premier said no red line, yeah, right? Yeah, that exactly. They're open-minded. Um, that's nice. There are other Premiers, though, that are going to go into that room pretty confrontational. Alberta's Daniel Smith, confrontational. Scott Moe from Saskatchewan, confrontational. So it be an interesting dynamic around that table to see if they can arrive at unanimity or really what this is about is the bilateral deals that will be eventually hammered out going forward. I think, I think bilateral, based on my conversations, Robin, I'd love to hear from you, is, is the way it's going to go from from what I hear very similar to Stephanie Ontario is very much on board and might actually be the first one to strike a deal because they're already looking somewhere in the neighborhood of what I hear is 73 billion dollars over over 10 years provinces like Saskatchewan and Quebec I understand are the most reticent neither I I would imagine uh, uh, surprise any of us here Rob what do you think no, Vashi, I agree. And Steph's right. I mean, I think the, the bilateral deals will be the order of the day. And I think unlike we saw with the, uh, with the $10 a day childcare deals, where Ontario was last to sign uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau, I think Ontario would be, would be at the top of the, uh, of the charts and top of the, or the first in line, because they, they know that there's an urgent need 
for this money. They also know that they can live with the conditions or the strings that the federal government's going to attach to this funding, uh, whether it's on improved data collection, more money for mental health uh, uh, care, uh, long-term care, home care. All of these kinds of things are really, really important. And there's, a, there's a, I think, a consensus that's built in the in the years uh, in the years of COVID nineteen and in the, as we emerge from the pandemic, that something has to be done really quickly. So, Doug Ford was saying the same thing as Justin Trudeau last week. There's no time for political political games. This is a time for action. Canadians expect to see uh, some bang for their buck. Uh, Binder, I was sort of sitting there interviewing Premier Eby, thinking about how different it was than interviewing his predecessor John Horgan on the same subject, who was probably like. For, for years, leading the charge, it felt like uh, against the prime minister to try and force some sort of meeting like the one that's going to happen next week. Uh, it, does it appear to you also like, like Premier Eby is ready to sign on the dotted line sooner rather than later? Yeah, I think so too. And I wouldn't be surprised if BC was actually the first because Premier <laughs> David Eby, after taking over from John Horgan, has put in place a 100-day plan. That is going to be up near the end of the month. So what uh, I expect to see is a small uh, stable funding over the years for the provinces and then these bilateral deals. And remember, there is a lot of synergy in terms of the NDP government here and the federal liberal government. Uh, they agree on a lot of principles and so I think they can move forward quickly on a bilateral deal just like they did on childcare. Let's talk about the politics of this for a second, Stephanie, especially, you know, the, the people in the building behind us, for, for the federal government. This had been something they resisted for a long time because they wanted to ensure there were there was some compliance around accountability uh, from the provinces. This is also an advance of the federal budget. They, it, from everything we've been hearing, they want to track towards that date as having a deal in place. What kind of when will that be for the Prime Minister? The Prime Minister is suffering right now from this idea and it's being reflected in polls again and again that people are losing faith in his ability to get stuff done that the government is stalling on its promises that it has to walk things back you know as recently as Friday Vashi we saw them make a, a big walk back on their gun bill so they're a bit stalled right in this idea that um, they can get things done and they need a win they need a deliverable win and healthcare is something that's pretty emotional for people they're pretty vested poll after poll now is showing that healthcare is willing to outpace inflation as a concern for Canadians so it is a political win if the Prime Minister can deliver a deal but the issue then becomes as you know Benzie so accurately pointed out people need it to move quick these deals tend to be money over time. You know, they get allocated over, over years. years. Yeah. Over 10 years is what we're looking at. What I think needs to come out of this meeting, perhaps, is something that's quick, flashy, and the Prime Minister can say, hey, we're delivering this, and we're delivering it right now. I think also, though, Rob, to be able to say we have an agreement on health care, something that we have been in, in the absence of for a long time, uh, is a political win, too. It has to be. Yeah, definitely. And, and remember, the Prime Minister's political prospects are more precarious than most of the Premiers. Okay, Danielle Smith has, a, has an election in May, and she'll be posturing, I expect, next week, uh, or this week, I guess, Monday uh, or Tuesday at, at, the, at the meeting for voters back home. But the Prime Minister is in a minority situation uh, where who knows what happens in his confidence and supply arrangement with Jagmeet Singh's New Democrats. So he needs, a, uh, Stephanie's right, he needs a deliverable win. And, and there is nothing more important to Canadians, all of the polling shows, than healthcare, then access to doctors, then uh, uh, improved wait times. Uh, the surgical wait times are still way too long in most of the country. Binder, last word to you on this. I think that theme of get stuff done has certainly been a vulnerability that the Conservatives have honed in on. Does this do something to counter that? 
Yeah, I think it does. And um, as everyone's pointed out here, that this is an emotional issue. This is what people are talking about around their dinner tables. And I think for Premier David Eby, he also wants to show people, remember, he wasn't elected. He took over after John Horgan stepped down. And so he also wants to show British Columbians that he has it in him to strike these kinds of deals with uh, the federal government. And while the federal government wants to get this done before they deliver their spring budget, BC's budget is actually coming at the end of this month. So there's going to be a lot of provinces that still have some uncertainty when it comes to their numbers. And an interesting note, uh, the meeting takes place on Tuesday. Tomorrow, uh, we have the throne speech here in British Columbia. David Eby will not be here for that because he will be attending the meetings in Ottawa. I think that just goes to show exactly how important this issue is for the premiers, the prime minister, but also all Canadians. Yeah, very much so. That's the perfect point to end things on. Thanks very much to Stephanie Levitz, Rob Benzi, and Binder Sajjan. Before we go today, I want to tell you about three things I'm watching for this week. Tomorrow, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino, as well as the RCMP's commissioner and the head of Canada's spy agency, are set to appear at a committee studying Canada's relationship with China. It'll be particularly interesting since a Chinese balloon equipped with cameras was found moving over this country last week. Of course, I'll also be watching when the Prime Minister meets with the Premiers here in Ottawa on Tuesday. They're talking about a potential healthcare funding deal. I'm really curious to see how much money the feds actually bring to the table. And then, just days ago, the Liberals' controversial online streaming act, known as Bill C-11, passed through the Senate. Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez told me it could get through Parliament as soon as this week. I'll be watching for that and any reaction to it. That does do it, though, for us today. Thanks so much for watching. I'm Vashi Capellos. I'll see you tomorrow on Power Play. Have a great day.